Save the UK. Nish is away filming, so we've called in our very clever friend, Grace Blakely, to help us out this week. Regular listeners may remember Grace from episode 15, when we discussed Rishi Sunak's wealth, whether billionaires should even exist, and the fanciest meals we've ever had. Uh, author and economist, Grace Blakely. Hi, welcome Hello. back. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, so Grace, as you know, we try and do this podcast by being very honest about who we are. We try to be different. Not like the other girls. When you see them on the telly and you just think, you're friends of all those politicians you're talking about. We know inside, <laughs> deep down you are. We try and be a bit more honest. So let's get to it. Your voting record. Let's hear it. My voting record. So I think the first election that I was old enough to vote in was 2015 and I voted green. Okay. Um, I was very much like anti-austerity. Like, you know, I'm a socialist basically. Um, and since then I voted Labour. Um, and, you know, I've been pretty involved in the Labour Party, less so now, more so during the kind of Jeremy Corbyn period. As I said, I'm a kind of proud socialist. Yeah. Um, so technically, that is supposed to be the ideology of the Labour Party. If you're a member of the Labour Party and you turn over your membership card, it says it's a democratic socialist party. Although at the moment, it seems to be kind of moving away yeah, from, yeah, yeah. from that sort of um, ideology. But yeah, you know, I, I'm a democratic socialist. I think that... Ordinary people should be in control of the most important decisions that um, that affect their lives, whether that's in the economy, at work, um, in politics. Um, I think power should be kind of shared out amongst people rather than centralised among a few people at the top. That's how I would explain it, basically. So does that mean that, you know, you haven't decided who you're going to vote for in the next one? It's a toughie. I, it is a tough one because, you know, on the one hand... Obviously, I want to see the Tories out. On the other hand, I don't want to kind of give an endorsement to uh, what I consider to be a pretty kind of lame set of policies that, that Starmer is pushing. Then again, there have been some positive noises that he's been making on things like removing anti-trade union legislation, which I think is really, really important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's so important that we have a kind of vibrant labour movement that's out there protecting workers' rights and kind of, and lobbying the government itself, actually, to kind of, to do things that are a bit more radical. Um, and I think, you know, if he um, comes out and says a bit more radical stuff in the environment as well, I will be pushed definitely in that in, yeah. in that direction. And then, you know, once you have a labour government, it's then on people like me to stand up and say, what are you doing? There's this problem Let's try and fix it. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's mm. like a family relationship. You know, you've got, always got to keep at it. Yeah, keep at it, it's keep a very it. difficult family relationship. I guess the reason <laughs> I was curious is about that because I just had this vision. I was like, oh, she said she voted Green once. I guarantee you she was going to get a DM from the Green Party after this episode. <laughs> but possibly. I might get a DM yeah, yeah. from the Labour Party being like, you're out, mate. <laughs> but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so look, politics at the moment is uh, in this very weird period where Parliament has effectively shut up shop uh, for an entire month. So all the major political parties can go off and have their autumn conferences. The Lib Dems have just wound up their shindig in Bournemouth while the Tories are heading to Manchester this weekend. Then a week later, Labour has it's get together in Liverpool. Then there's the SNP in Aberdeen. It's a lot of conferences. I've never been to a single one. I think you haven't. You, have. no, you never, are missing invited. out, Coco. You don't really have to be invited. You can. I mean, some of them you technically can just show up. I think if you're a if you're a member or a journalist, it's, or it's not you have a guest to register. List situation. Then. It's not. It's not technically a guest list situation. Right. 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 <laughs> um, I think if you're a member, you can apply, and if you're a journalist, you can apply and right, go. And you. it's quite a loose definition, so you know basically just rock up and hang out with all the the great and the good okay, whilst so they what, get like, drunk. What actually, and... what actually happens at a conference? So, I mean, I have, I've been to like lots of Labour Party conferences. Yeah. I've been to one or two 
conservative party conferences as well because I used to work at a think tank. So we used to go to party conferences and kind of advocate on behalf of the things that we were researching. Um, so I've been to a few Tory party conferences, but never kind of really stuck around, always just hanging around around the fringes, like, you know, spotting lots of largely old men walking around. Um, and yeah, you know, I've been to a lot of Labour ones, which have always been relatively fun, actually, yeah. I would say. I mean, it kind of feels like nerd summer camp, I guess. <laughs> okay. Like there's this little universe and everyone kind of knows each other and you're walking along the street and you're like, oh, there's my favourite political journalist. Shall I go up and ask for a selfie? <laughs> or like, whatever. It's and like, then everyone so goes like... like Glastonbury it, that way. Well, yeah, it's, it is Glastonbury for nerds, right, basically, okay. I would say. Um, yeah, and then everyone goes out and gets drunk and, and has fun and embarrasses themselves. And then there are people taking pictures that are probably going to be used to blackmail them in like 10 years' time. So it's quite... <laughs> well, then, then I absolutely cannot ever go to a conference because I'm 100% walking blackmail material. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, my God. Especially every, after a few pints. Literally every Sunday night, I'll wake up like, well, that's the end of my career. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, so we will get to this week's news in a moment. But first... I want to tell you about this. So at Crooked Media, we love books. They teach us new things. They expand our horizons. So we've actually created our own storefront at bookshop.org where you can find books published by Crooked's imprint and a selection of favourites from the Crooked team. There's loads more. Also, just to let you know, me and Nish, we're kind of book people too. That's actually how we met. We did a book project called The Good Immigrant. And yes, you can find it in the Crooked Authors section. So bookshop.org directly supports local booksellers. You won't be personally funding Jeff Bezos and whatever new yacht he's got going on. So that's a plus. So if you're interested, please head to crooked.com forward slash bookstore to find your next read. So as the UK's political parties finalise their manifesto plans at their autumn conferences, the calculators are out and the country's finances are being poured over. Where can money be saved? Where can it be spent? Taxation, pensions, spending plans and cutbacks. It's all up for grabs as politicians search for ways to win your votes. But something we often hear about is that there's not much money to play with. Is that quite true? So I think this is something that we often hear um, from particularly like the right and to, to a certain extent, kind of the centre of the political spectrum, which is the idea that, you know, there's no money left. Or the, the credit card has just been, has run up loads of debt and there's absolutely nothing we can do. There's no money for public services, no money for investment or anything like that. And it's just not true. I mean, um, the government has the capacity to raise money, to raise resources, not just through taxation. Um, obviously, if we're in a, a recession or if economic growth isn't that high, you're not going to get as much money money from tax. But the government has the capacity to mobilise resources through, for example, longer term borrowing. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that that's often, you know, there's this idea that if you, it's like putting money on a credit card, right? But that isn't true. Um, it's more like if you're a business, um, if you just stopped spending money, if you kind of stopped employing your workers, stopped paying your rent, um, decided that you weren't going to kind of invest anything in expanding your business, your business would soon shut down. Whereas if you borrowed a bit of money from a bank um, and used it to kind of expand your store or to invest in marketing or whatever, then your business will grow more over the long run. And it's kind of similar when we're talking mm. about the economy. If you want to, say, uh, in increase 
connectivity, growth, create a, a better environment for businesses, create a more kind of educated workforce. You need to invest in things like transport, infrastructure. If we want to save the planet, you know, we need to invest in renewable technologies. We need to invest in education. And all of that requires some level of spending. And that spending is completely affordable. Um, it's just a question of, you know, whether or not we're using the resources in the wisest way possible. And historically, we haven't done that. Historically, we've basically kind of borrowed lots of money, thrown it at the banks, thrown it at, you know, businesses during various different crises, um, used it for very inefficient things like private financing initiatives and outsourcing. And uh, yeah, haven't kind of invested that money wisely. So if we were to invest the money wisely, it would pay off over the long run. Well, what a perfect introduction to <laughs> the big spending news story of, I'm going to say like the last couple of years anyway, yeah. like this HS2. It's basically one of the most expensive infrastructure projects that we've had for a while. For listeners who are unfamiliar with it, the high speed rail project was intended to link London, the Midlands and the north of England, but it's increasingly looking like that's it's just not going to happen. It's not going to get much further than Birmingham, basically. Yeah. Rishi Sunak is reportedly planning on axing the Birmingham to Manchester leg with the PM alarmed by suggestions that the cost of the project could eventually exceed £100 billion. There had been speculation that an announcement would come this week, but with the Tories heading to Manchester for their conference, that might also have been a bit too awkward. So it's now thought that the announcement that the uh, Birmingham to Manchester leg will be axed will wait until the Chancellor's autumn statement in November. Nonetheless, people are very upset about it. There's uh, an outcry, particularly from the northern cities. So, Grace, take us through some more of the eye-watering sums around yeah. this project. So, initially, um, when uh, H2 was given the go-ahead, the idea was that it was going to cost around $32 billion. Now, that's obviously a lot of money. Not as much as um, the latest figures, which suggest it could reach more than $71 billion. Um, and actually if it kind of continued as as we're seeing now, eventually it could reach, as we've just heard, over a hundred billion. And I think, you know, the interesting thing here is like I'm a hundred percent in favor of investing in transport infrastructure. It's really important. It's the kind of foundation of a lot of economic growth. It helps people to get around. Um, it will help us to move towards a, a kind of more climate friendly um you know, foundation for our for our transport infrastructure. The issue is, is that money being spent wisely? And the reason I think the money around HS2 hasn't been spent wisely, the decision was that it was going to be um, used to link a few major cities that are already relatively well connected. It was going to shave something like 20 minutes off the journey between Manchester and London. So to be honest, my view was always that it was going to be much, much better value for money much better for growth over the long term and also much better for addressing things like inequality and regional inequality if we were to invest a bit more in rail systems in, say, you know, linking different parts of the north, linking different mm -hmm. parts of the Midlands, the southwest, the East Midlands, um, all the way going up into kind of Scotland and Wales as well. Um, that would have been cheaper. Land values are, uh, aren't as high, um, so it would be easier to kind of get all the resources that you'd need to do it. Um, and it would also, yeah, as I said, have these kind of spillovers that would help with this levelling up agenda that, that Boris Johnson was keen on and we haven't really heard much about since Rishi Sunak. I mean, just on the thing about it would shave 20 minutes off, I, I do hear you, but also that bloody train... I have many, many times found myself at Euston Station just simply unable to get on it. Yeah, the capacity no, it's is true. Nuts. Honestly, the moment, the moment when you're in Euston and it comes up now boarding, it's like the Squid Game. Yeah, and then everyone just 
pegs it, elbows out to get onto this train. Many times I've been left crying on this platform. No, I totally agree. We, we, we need more investment everywhere in our rail network. Like that is absolutely unquestionable. Um, but we do know that so far a lot of the investment that we have seen has been concentrated in and around London. And look, there are very good reasons for that, right? London is by far the biggest city in the UK. Birmingham is the second biggest city. So it makes sense that you want to have good links between those two places. Um, But the issue is, is that it kind of creates a self-reinforcing cycle, right? Where you look at the statistics in terms of economic growth. The Treasury uses this thing called the Green Book to calculate what the returns are going to be on infrastructure investment. And so they plug in all the numbers and they say, right, if we invest more in London, because London's already so big, then we're going to get more of an absolute in, like return on what we're investing just because, you know, the numbers are just are just bigger. It just makes more sense. Um Whereas if you were to look at that, those same statistics and, and, you know, put them in, you know, the north or whatever, then it, it, it looks like you're going to get less of a return in terms of economic growth. Uh, but it's quite a kind of short-termist way of looking about things because obviously you then say, right, we're going to invest in London because there's lots of people in London and it will improve growth and all the economic activity happens there. So you get more investment in London, which means more people move to London, more economic activity happens in London. And then it just kind of creates this self-reinforcing cycle. So actually, if we really wanted to... Yes, support, you know, people who are living in and around London and Manchester, but also make sure that we're seeing enough investment in other parts of the country. Then it would have made sense to probably scale down the ambition in terms yeah. of HS2 and also not use such a wasteful way of financing and, and, and operating it and invest some more money in transport in, you know, the North and the Midlands. In, oh, in absolutely. Places. Absolutely. And it's sad that it's sort of often been positioned as this kind of either or, mm. like, you know, that, that they have to accept HS2 or that's it, that's your yeah, life. Exactly. We know that more infrastructure is always good. Today, five Labour Metro mayors, London's Sadiq Khan, Greater Manchester's Andy Burnham, West Yorkshire's Tracy Brabin, South Yorkshire's Oliver Coppard and Liverpool City Region's Steve Rotherham are meeting in Leeds to sign a joint letter to Sunak. They want him to go ahead with both HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail in full. Northern Powerhouse Rail would be the uh, railway for the Northern Regions. They say they've been inundated by concern from businesses and that failure to deliver HS2 and NPR will leave swathes of the north with Victorian transport infrastructure that is unfit for purpose and cause huge economic damage in London and the south where construction of the line has already begun. Um, Something that I've been thinking a lot about is why can't we do it when so many other countries can? You know, Spain has rolled out 4,000 kilometres of high-speed track. France has 3,000. Some of the things that I've been hearing is that partly it's to do with just our crazy property prices. Mm. You know, so it ends up costing quite a lot more money to do it here. What's your take on, on why... Britain is just so crap at delivering massive infrastructure projects. You know, Wembley, Heathrow Terminal 5, Crossrail as well. I've got to mention Crossrail. That was four billion over budget. So look, I think one of the big problems here when it comes to all kinds of infrastructure development and actually with um, housing development and with the property market more generally is that we have this system where the gains from development, the gains from any form of kind of investment are privatised whilst the costs are are socialised basically. They're borne by, uh, by people in general, by you know, the state, basically. So that means, you know, if you are going to build uh, a new railway line, everyone knows that property prices in that area are going to go up, that, you know, you're going to get more economic growth, that uh, it's going to kind of um, support development in that local area. But a lot of that value ends up just accruing to the people who own land in and around that place. And this is something that we see with development more generally, right? So if, you know, 
Developers will buy up big swathes of land, often relatively cheaply, wait for planning permission, then the value of the land will go up yeah, loads. Yeah. They may not even, you know, then actually use that to develop. They'll just take the money that they've seen from the increase in uh, in the, the value of the land as a result of planning permission being granted. Um, and that you know, basically all of those resources then end up accruing to like a small number of quite wealthy and powerful people. So that's a really major issue. And it's something that we need to rectify. Um, The other challenge, which is kind of related, is the fact that we just rely so much on um, the private sector when it comes from to everything from pri- financing big infrastructure projects to delivering them to operating them. So, you know, private financing initiatives, for example, were found by the National Audit Office to be about 40% more expensive and um, than, than, you know, just public funding. And that is um, when uh, a big infrastructure project is planned and rather than the government borrowing money, which is generally pretty cheap because, you know, borrowing from the government is quite a good bet. If you're going to lend to anyone, lending to a big, powerful government like the UK is is generally quite a safe bet. Instead of doing that, private finance is raised on private financial markets and then private actors then go ahead and, and develop the project. They invest in it, they operate it. So it's all private money and it ends up being much more expensive. And I think that speaks to, again, a much more general mm. problem, which is that because of decades of privatization, underinvestment by the public sector, um, outsourcing, the capacity of the public sector has just been stripped right down. And we are forced often to rely on private financing, private organizations to deliver a lot of infrastructure investment. So what we need is really to kind of develop the capacity of the public sector, um, both to uh, kind of raise that financing on, on its own and also to make sure that the the contract writing process is getting a bit nerdy, but like the tendering process is fair and efficient. Often we'll have like big consultancies writing the contracts that are then being bid on by all these different um, infrastructure companies and then advising those infrastructure companies about how to win those contracts. So it's kind of a bit of a crazy system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is interesting though. Do you know, that was one of the things when I was reading about Spain's efficiency on this is that they simply don't put it out to tender until they've already got a robust kind of feasibility study. And that involves, can we actually buy that land? Have we initiated conversations on that? And so even though, okay, maybe it is granular to talk about like the administration of, of it, it does make a difference. And then the other thing that I just thought was quite funny is that, and I do hear people's environmental concerns around it. I do understand that. And I think they should be considered, but it was fascinating how kind of a lot of the Oxfordshire landowners and property owners made quite a lot of money from this project, Mm. you know, selling their, uh, their property for this project to go on, but it just really put them off the conservatives anyway, because it happened. And that was their core demographic and they'll probably go Lib Dem now. So yeah, what a strange tale. (laughs) Yeah. That could be something, you know, not too negative that comes out of it all. Putting, Uh, putting some wealthy landowners off voting Tory. Yeah, why not? Exactly. (laughs) Listen, you've got to find a silver lining. And the last thing I would just mention on this is that I came across a man called Roderick Smith. Okay. Yes. And he was the Department for Transport's chief science advisor. When he was in that role between 2012 and 2014, he regularly said that we don't need this line, actually. Mm. What we really need was a... the, the kind of northern powerhouse yeah. rail. I mean, you know, it, as we've been saying, we could probably use both. Right, of like, course. But it is, <laughs> but it is, it is just, a question of priority. It's just funny how like, you know, 
there's always this uh, this phrase, you know, Captain Hindsight that yeah. like Boris and um, now Rishi use for, for Starmer and just broadening that out to anyone that's vaguely critical of the government. They always say, oh, it's easy to look back now, isn't it? I just think it's worth mentioning that people were saying it before it was even begun. Yeah. Um, coming up next, our special guest, Leila Moran, Lib Dem MP. of a roller coaster decade for the Liberal Democrats. Up until 2015, they were in government as junior partners in coalition with the Conservatives. That taste of power came at a terrible cost, though. The general election that year saw the party obliterated at the polls, going from 57 MPs to just eight. They still had just 11 MPs in Parliament after the 2019 general election, but the party has since gained four seats following some spectacular by-election victories and is hoping to snatch two more next month. So there was plenty of optimism around as the Lib Dems gathered in Bournemouth at the start of this week. The centrepiece was Ed Davies' leader speech uh, with his ambitious plan for ending cancer delays and boosting survival rates. There were also plenty of digs at their former coalition partners, the Conservatives, who he called clowns in the past. And he started with an apology to a Lib Dem party member who had complained about exactly that because he's a clown himself. Clowns didn't waste billions of pounds of our money on dodgy PPE contracts. Clowns didn't prop up a lying, law-breaking prime minister and then allow him to put his cronies in the House of Lords. Clowns didn't do it. The Conservatives did. So, let me take this opportunity to apologise unreservedly to that party member and to the whole clowning community. <laughs> I'm sorry, I used the wrong C word. So let me, let me try again. It's time to get these Conservatives out of number 10. We're joined by Liberal Democrat MP Leila Moran, who is also party spokesperson for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs and International Development and Science, Innovation and Technology. Hi, Leila. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's kick off with hearing a little bit more about you. You know, we, we are living in a two-party system and one of them is generally not the Liberal Democrats. We've also had, you know, we had Mary Black on the show a little while ago. She talked about being an SNP uh, MP and, and basically she came from a Labour family and she decided to step away. I understand you had something of a similar journey. I just wanted to hear about what that moment was for you. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, I wouldn't say the family party, but my father um, really credits Labour for, he was the first in his family to go to university and he's had a very successful career since then, but he absolutely owes, he, in his eyes, his education and therefore his career to being able to get that degree when his parents didn't have very much at all. Um, and so, you know, he calls himself a labor man. But I should say, like, when I was a young person, I just didn't take any interest at all, at all in politics. I was, um, I did a physics degree. I then went into physics teaching. That was really my thing. Um, but education was like the segue. And I then learned more and more about educational inequality and that whilst mm. I was in incredible schools, actually not every kid is in an incredible school and they should be and they deserve that. And then I looked at, well, why is that? And actually what's the best policies to fix that? 
So I looked at all the political parties, I'm, you know, science background, so I, I gave everyone a fair shot, made a bit of a grid and, you know, um, and the best one in terms of what I was studying in my master's at the time versus what policies they had was the Liberal Democrats. So I was like, well, that one then. And there we are. I mean, I, I just, can I just say, I just really respect that level of research that you, you put into it. Good for you. I hope all our listeners do the same. Um, so I, I also want to talk to you a little bit about your your election strategy, as in the Liberal Democrats. Um, at the moment, I saw a little statistic that said that in Ed Davies' speech, he talked about the Conservatives over 20 times and he didn't talk much about Labour. I think there was only like three mentions, which kind of tells you what the strategy is, which is take some away from the Tories. Now, listen, Leila, I'll be transparent. You know, I've traditionally voted Labour. I am delighted to see any votes taken away from the Conservatives. But how does that actually work? And is there a risk that you cut away from the progressives as well? Mm. So some of it's just quite pragmatic. Every political party, including Labour and the Tories, not least because we do have limits on election spending. You know, some countries don't, but we do. We'll have to make choices about where they prioritise. And because we are in a first-past-the-post system, whoever gets the most votes win. We, by the way, want proportional representation. We don't Mm -hmm, think mm -hmm. that that delivers the best government. There are lots and lots of votes in this country that are wasted. And what we want is for governments to be returned that reflect, frankly, the progressive majority that does exist in this country. It's just it's not always expressed in the way the the first-past-the-post system works. Um, So in the absence of that change, which, by the way, will be a core plank of our manifesto, um, we have to target where we where we put in our resources. We will run candidates everywhere. We think people should have the choice. There'll be no deals or packs or anything like that. Um, but in the seats where we are second to the Tories, especially with the utter shambles that they are now, the clowns that they are, no offence to clowns, <laughs> no offence to clowns, clowns, we love you, um, then uh, that's where we're probably going to be targeting our resources. So my area of Oxford, Western Abingdon has either ever been either Tory or Lib Dem. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons we campaign to Labour voters. We say you should have the ability to sort of rank and put people in a choice and, and do things differently. But unfortunately, first past the post means you've got to make a choice. Please vote for me to kick the Tories out. And so a lot of them do. I love the honesty of that because I'm sure lots of our listeners will be faced with that exact scenario that you've just painted there. I am curious about how it will work in terms of Brexit, though. The Liberal Democrats have always been quite open about keeping that conversation. I mean, is Brexit going to feature in your election strategy, do you think? Yeah, well, so what we did at this conference, and it was quite an important conference because we haven't had one in four years. So, I mean, just to put it in perspective for people, for political geeks like me, conference is like a festival, which is why my voice sounds... <laughs> We've just been discussing it. <laughs> like, seriously, it's 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 like my voice is gone. Um, but it's awesome and it's joyous. And imagine, you know, you haven't seen a lot of your friends for like four years. And it was really important to do that. But also it's potentially the last one before a general election that may or may not happen in May next year. I mean, who knows? But that's one of the dates that's that's being thrown about. So we revealed our pre-manifesto and in there we talk specifically about two things that are related to Europe. One is the economy. The cost of living crisis, without a doubt, is the most important thing. The top of the list, you knock on a door, that's what people talk about. They can't make ends meet. They're doing everything they can. And the stories, I mean, I can't tell you the stories, they are heartbreaking. That is the top of the list. But it would be foolish to look at the economy, look at the state of small businesses, farmers, fishermen, 
and not point out that one of the reasons they're struggling right now is because of the trade and cooperation agreement. So, you know, we voted against it. We knew it would be ruinous for the country. Labour voted for it. Tories voted for it. We are going to be talking about how it needs huge change and we need to rebuild those relationships with Europe. Good. There you go. That's my thoughts. I'm glad someone's talking about it because it genuinely drives me mad sometimes. So, you know, I watch, I'll watch a question time and no one is going to mention the B word. The B word itself is, is very much sort of past looking. I mean, I think the way I would put it and the way we put it is that we want to take away as many barriers to trade as possible. That's, that's what we're talking about. But we are talking specifically about Europe. We want to be at the heart of Europe again. And to do that, you have to start by rebuilding those relationships, which have been ruined by the Tories. They've been antagonized. They've been, you know, trust wasn't that long ago. It's just ridiculous that we've got to this stage when 40% of our trade is with the European continent. It shouldn't be like this. So I wanted to ask you about um, some of the big promises that were made at conference. Um, it was great to hear about the, the NHS and cancer patients getting the treatment that they need. I'm just curious because I think some of the criticism that will come your way is say, oh, that's easy to say. What, what do you say to that criticism? Well, I would say, I mean, Ed's speech, he made really clear that's really not an easy promise at all to keep. He um, was really personal, actually, in his stories and spoke about he lost both of his parents to cancer, um, ended up being a young carer himself with his brothers. I mean, I was I was crying. Uh, you know, it was a, a moment. And, and it's so brave of him to share that story. And then he says, you know, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I want you to know that I share your pain because so many families, unfortunately, do have stories like that. He highlighted cancer, but actually this could well apply to all those families whose, you know, second operation has been cancelled and there's hundreds of thousands of them. I mean, it's it's now at crisis levels in the NHS. And what we talk about is social care. You know, he was a carer, really valuing those carers, but not just those carers that are paid to do it and they deserve more pay. We we think that they need a, a bonus to the minimum wage. They're not paid enough. We need to attract people into that profession. That itself will help the NHS because that's what's stopping people from being able to be uh, discharged from beds. That's blocking beds in hospital. And then there's that knock-on effect. It also starts to pay for itself, by the way, because there's huge inefficiency in the system when you've got that happening. And then he said, and it's so easy to say, you know, we just blame everything on the Tories. Actually, we don't. He said, this is above party politics. We need a national consensus on how we're going to fix the NHS. And I think he was really brave to say that. The easy thing to do is just say, you know, it's all one person's fault. Actually, it is one person's fault. It is the Tory party's fault. I'm sorry, it is. But it's everyone's problem. And we need all political parties now to come together and find those longer term solutions. So you mentioned earlier proportional representation. That's something that doing this podcast comes up a lot. Yep. There's definitely a desire from it from lots of people. Um, and and maybe that would kind of put the the conversation about tactical voting to bed. But nonetheless, that that conversation is is big at the moment. And I wanted to take advantage of you being on the show to to field a question from about this topic um, directly from a listener. So uh, one of our listeners, James Whitaker, has uh, sent a question, and yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. 
Hey guys, uh, love the show. I just wanted to drop a quick note about tactical voting. Uh, it gets brought up a lot on the show and I'm sure it will more as the next election comes up. Um, but I hate tactical voting. Um, I think it's the reason why we're all so disillusioned with politics. Um, because ultimately, if we're not voting for the policies we believe in, then we can't hold our politicians accountable uh, for any changes they make, any U-turns they make, any failed pledges they make. But if we changed our voting based on the policies, uh, that would allow us to hold our politicians accountable. After decades of people voting based on who they want out and things like that, I, I don't think it's got us anywhere. And I think it's completely disillusioned uh, my generation, the next generation. Um, so, yeah, I hate tactical voting. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So James Whitaker says tactical voting doesn't work and is bad for politics. What do you think, Leila? I actually agree with him in that I also hate tactical voting. I think people shouldn't have to do it. And that's why we want fairer votes. That's why we want proportional representation. So in this country, and by the way, we're really out of step with other countries. Other countries are, have worked this out. It doesn't deliver good governments. With your one vote, you've got to pick who the next prime minister is, what the makeup of the next parliament is, and also your local MP, which is someone who is linked to your area and who's meant to be your local champion. All three of those things are actually quite big, meaty, important things. And sometimes your vote wants to do different things and you then have to work out, well, who do you, who do you like least? And you're voting on the basis of who you like least. That is not a positive way to vote. You know, that is not the heart way to vote. And at the moment, a lot of people have to, with their heads and their hearts, do different things. Proportional representation uh, allows you to have a conversation about how do we stop that from happening. And actually to the wider point about malaise in politics, I mean, it's not just that, is it, James? It's also that we have been so badly governed that our government is shocking and doesn't just want to play politics and divide people and be populist. They also want to break the law and in fact have and actively talk about it and antagonize the courts, people and anyone who doesn't agree with them. All of that, I think, desperately needs change. And I think one of the ways you do that is to spark that conversation of fairer votes. So that's why as a party, we advocate for it. It's in our manifesto. And we are going to be talking about wider political form reform as well. All I would say to James is in the interim, you know, if you don't like it, then that's why we believe in giving people the choice. You know, if they don't want to do it, they shouldn't have to do it. And so we'll be standing candidates everywhere. Um, I wish we didn't have to tactical vote. And I agree with you, but I don't think tactical voting is the problem. I think the voting system is the problem. I guess my concern is when it works well, it works well. When it doesn't work well, it's quite uh, alarming. So, for example, I'm just going to be completely upfront with you, Leila. Like, what? How can we be sure there's not going to be a repeat of 2010? Progressives give their vote to the Liberal Democrats and then they end up supporting the Conservatives. That's a kind of nightmare uh, situation that I think people that voted tactically in that weren't we're kind of not really expecting. Grace, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. One thing I would say in response to James's point that we can't hold them accountable once they get in is it's not true. There are lots of ways to do politics, not just voting. If we are, you know, really aggrieved with the government, get out onto the streets, protest, you know, um, join your Labour movement, actually, like get involved in politics in those ways because politics is really diverse. Um, but I did also want, I, I had a few questions for Layla myself, actually. 
the first thing I just wanted to ask really about is you spoke really passionately and eloquently about education, about the cost of living crisis. Um, but I don't feel like I've heard anything particularly compelling from the Lib Dems on any of those things. I want to hear interesting, punchy things from the Lib Dems on these points. And I just don't feel like I'm getting it. Well, let's get it now then. Yeah. Let's have it now. <laughs> Leila, what do you think? So to your point about, um, you know, would we go in with the Conservatives next time? That has been mm -hmm. categorically ruled out. That has been right. absolutely ruled out. And the reason for that is because look at them. You know, even, <laughs> I'm so sorry, this cat. No, you <laughs> never need to apologise for your cat. I'm a cat person myself. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. What, what, what's her name? If you don't mind Murphy. Murphy. Murphy the cat. Is that because of Murphy's law? Anything no, bad that can happen will happen. <laughs> my third year of university. And as you can see, she's very fluffy and black and white. Oh. Um, and so if you turn her upside down, she looks like a pint of Murphy's. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good name. But anyway, right. we digress. We digress. Sorry. So to, to, you know, would we go in with the Tories? Absolutely not. I mean, I would also point out, though, you know, our focus right now is influence in the next government, because the mm -hmm. other thing that I would say, um, and I know, you know, you vote Labour and I have huge respect for that, but I believe that there are things that Labour Party does that I don't agree with. So one of them is not reversing, for example, the two child cap on universal yep. credit. Mm, yep. I don't Fair think enough. that's right. And moreover, I think it's really, really wrong that they apparently have passed something just this week to say that no one can even debate that at their conference. I, I just mm. That's just not the Lib Dem way. The Lib Dem way, yeah. even when we disagree, we don't stop our members from disagreeing with us publicly. We, we, we cherish that. So in terms of specific policies, one of the ones that we've been highlighting is that we think social media giants should be taxed more to pay for qualified mental health professional in every single state school in the country. That's 22,000 schools. Now, that's hugely ambitious. It's tackling the mental health crisis, which we've always championed as a party, right at the very highest levels. But it's speaking to actually the real lived experience of young people at the moment. And there really is a crisis out there, I have to say. Um, Leila, I just want to follow up with you on some breaking news that we've, we've heard about today. Uh, it's that the UK's largest untapped oil field has been approved by regulators um, for uh, for um, exploration. So Rosebank, which is Maine. located 80 miles off west of uh, Shetland, is estimated to contain 500 million barrels of oil. Last month, 50 MPs and peers from all major parties raised concerns the field could produce 200 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. Now, this is obviously one of, if not the greatest challenge that we're we're facing as a country. Um, and I've been, I think a lot of people have been really disappointed with most parties, actually, when yeah. it comes to, to uh, stuff on climate breakdown. You know, Rishi Sunak just had this massive U-turn of which this is a part. The Labour Party aren't saying anything particularly ambitious mm. about the need for just real, um, a lot of investment, basically, in renewables, in transitioning to a to a green economy. Um, what is your view? What is the liberal view on this? Because, you know, it's all very well talking about the free market, but we're not going to have a market if we don't have a planet. Yeah, I agree with you. So that that plan, that pre-manifesto that I was telling you about for conference, Strand 2, is climate crisis. It is the climate emergency. And our view is that we shouldn't even be settling on net zero by twenty. 50, we have a plan for 2045 because we need mm. to be driving these industries as fast as possible. The U-turn last week made me so angry. Um, and I remember when I was very first elected, 2017, to my delight, climate change became 
something that people were mm. talking about in that election. It was like, it felt like a breath of fresh air for the first time. And in particular, it was young people. Like, oh, it was young people. <laughs> she's agreeing. She's agreeing. <laughs> she's agreeing. Um, you know, cats care about the environment too. But they were, they, were, they were protesting and coming out of school and deciding every Friday to come and protest and, and wanted this to be, to be the top priority. So the Liberal Democrat plan is actually to push further faster on on this one. I mean, this is just completely against what the IPCC says. If we're serious about taking net zero uh, to its end, then we shouldn't be taking fossil fuels out of the ground. There is an issue around what do we do with the um, North Sea oil in Scotland and a just transition for those communities. What we cannot end up with is a situation like during the mining crisis where you dial down those industries and leave nothing behind. So as part of this plan, it, it would include training, money, replacement jobs in those communities, particularly in places like Shetland, Aberdeen, those sorts of places. So it's not about you know leaving them high and dry, but taking fossil fuels out of the ground when you've got a climate emergency just strikes me as clearly the wrong thing to do. And I should say it is one of the biggest concerns that I get in my MP's email. Like mm. my constituents just do not understand this. Mm-mm. Well, I mean, you know, the Liberal Democrats could find themselves again the kind of kingmaker in the elections, and you've articulated uh, a number of places that you disagree with Labour. Are we right in thinking that you're already thinking about your red lines with the Labour Party if you were to go into a coalition with them? And can you tell us what those red lines might be? Yeah, we we aren't thinking in terms of red lines or not. We are thinking in terms of values and what we would champion. Right. And as I pointed out, we aren't the we aren't Labour light. And we aren't Tory like we have a long-standing liberal tradition that harks back hundreds of years. We've had liberal prime ministers. We have a long, long history, and long may it continue. And yes, we are 15 now, but we fully hope and intend to grow and spread that because you don't have to have one or the other. We are entirely different approach, community-led and bottom-up. And so those five strands, which is an you know growing the economy fairly, putting us back into the heart of Europe, rebuilding those relationships, climate crisis, proportional representation, and a real focus on that fair deal between you and the welfare state and the government. Those are the things that we will be championing. And I, I you know, where Labour gets it wrong, we will tell them. You know, where mm. they've got the wrong approach, we will tell them. We don't think, for example, that doing it top down in the way that Labour quite often do, a little bit dictatorial, a little bit centralised, we don't think that that gets you the results. So wherever we disagree with Labour, we will be also quite vociferous about it. Leila, can I just follow up with one more question here? Because all of this sounds amazing. It is obviously going to cost money. And what we're hearing from both political parties at the moment is a real insistence on basically kind of austerity. So the Tories, it's very obvious. With Labour, there's there's this um, arrangement that they don't want to really be borrowing very much money and that it's all going to be within these fiscal rules, which are you know calculated in a slightly weird way. What is your view? What is the Lib Dem view on actually borrowing to invest in things like um, getting uh, getting around climate breakdown? Yeah. So uh, what we've said, I mean, some policies pay for themselves. So the one around uh, personal care at home for those who are sick, actually, if you do that over a very short period of time, and we, we announced it in this conference, it would cost five billion. But actually, in the medium term, you would save that five billion by people not bed blocking in the NHS. So you, there are ways of doing things that might have an upfront cost and would be an investment. But actually, if you invest wisely, you can recoup that money. And then there are things that, you know, you just have to do. So we talk a lot about 
having you know funds to insulate homes and you know tackle climate crisis. I think the Tories are trying to paint this as something that we need to do to somehow help the poor. Well, first of all, chance will be a fine thing if you ever actually did that. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and, you know, let's not let's not get this is not them. And that's not why they're doing it. We know why they're doing it. They're playing it to the right wing and they think it's going to play well with a core of votes that, that, that frankly, you know, we're probably not after anyway. <laughs> we are very keen to make sure that climate justice is something that can be used to tackle poverty. And in mm. the same paper I talked about, we spoke about how do we get in you know, deep poverty to zero over the next 10 years. And part of that is going to be around things like home insulation, things like making sure you've got cheaper energy bills and making sure that you've got jobs that are fair and spread across the whole of the United Kingdom. So we've had that announcement from HS2 uh, this week. I, we don't agree. We think that actually you need to be investing in our railways. It mm. is an investment in the future and it's short-termism to try and you know take some of that money now and not invest in the medium and long term. Um, Leila, we are going to have to say goodbye to you, but before you go, I've got a really tough question for you hope you're ready what song did you sing at the conference glee club <laughs> well you might not like this i'm afraid um so uh glee <laughs> for those who don't know and i think i need to put it in its context <laughs> i don't know when it started it's madness it is i mean the way i put it to a room full of diplomats that i was speaking to some foreign affairs folks and you know i was talking about europe among other things and i was like if you go to glee just just beware british eccentricity is real um, and so what we do is we take well-known songs. So in my case, it was to the tune of O Tenenbaum, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree. But right, right, right. it's yeah, about yeah. the Labour Party not being great. And the reason for that, and we, are, we were, we had an alliance with Labour and the Greens in the county council in Oxfordshire and uh, Labour pulled out and I was really upset about it. And they pulled out because... So you did a diss track? So, oh my so, so we <laughs> track to Labour. Yeah, sorry about that. Release the tapes, Layla. I need to hear it. Where can I hear it? Please, can you? Would you sing this a bit, please? Go on. No, I don't have it with me because the lyrics are <gasps> like mad. It, the song is is called Pink Flag, and it's the Liberator Songbook. It is available to buy. I'm reliably informed, <laughs> and you can get it online if you want to see. Yeah, it's a diss song against Labour. Sorry. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. What a, what a mic drop and bombshell to leave this interview on. Thank you so much for your time, Leila Moran. Um, and we'll definitely be following yourselves and the Liberals um, as we run up to elections. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. So it's time to name our Pod Save the UK Hero and Villain of the Week. As you are our guest, Grace, I'll let you go first. You've got a hero for us, I believe. I do have a hero. My hero this week is the Good Law Project. Um, and they have brought up a legal challenge with the government um, uh, that has succeeded um, to bring missing storm overflows into the government's plan to tackle sewage dumping. Basically, all coastal waters and estuaries have now been included in the government's plan to reduce sewage dumping, thanks to the Good Law Project. This is something that I feel very passionately about. As someone who likes to surf, I've just come back from a lovely weekend away. 
went to Croyd, mm. had a surf. Mm. It was freezing, but it was lovely. And, and now you're very cold. sick. And and now, very no, I'm actually okay. okay. All you need That's is a very good. thick wetsuit. Um, uh, yeah, caught some good waves. So I was happy about that. But no, it is very good to know that someone is taking the government to task on just the astonishing um, under-regulation of the water companies, which shouldn't even be private companies mm, anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, they should be, you know, public, democratically owned and run um, institutions because at the moment they just have a monopoly and they're able to do whatever they want, which isn't really that great because they're dumping lots of sewage into the sea. Oh, God. Not nice. Shit in the sea is not It's nice. not nice. And as anyone who surfs knows, if you are going surfing, you are going to get a wave on the head. You're going to get dragged under. You're going to probably accidentally swallow, swallow some water. The last thing you want when you pop back up again is to think, I've just had something <laughs> gross in my mouth. <laughs> no, God. Um, well, okay. Well, I have the um, the job of doing villain of the week. Uh, in a strange way, I'm kind of blessed because there's so many villains to choose oh, from. So there's many. so many of them. So, well, a brother, and we can't pick her because we pick her every single week. But <laughs> she does. She is the villain that keeps on kicking. Uh, she's been in Washington where she's uh, just been doing her usual racist rhetoric. has gone up a notch, though, by uh, calling for the UN Convention on Human Rights to be torn up. Um, but something that's been really dominating the news today has been about GB News um, and its favourite Nepo baby actor turned right-wing <laughs> shock jock, Lawrence Fox. He's been spouting misogynistic hate about a female political journalist, Ava Evans. He was on Dan Wooten's show. So if you haven't quite followed this, what happened was Lawrence Fox was asked to comment on a segment in which Ava Evans appeared, which he was not on, by the Mm. way. Ava Evans said some comments, which she later said that she, you know, it wasn't quite what she wanted to articulate. She was maybe, you know, it, it sort of came we out. We all know what it's like wrong. when you're doing, you know, live TV or I mean, any kind know, of TV. I don't know. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even just doing this, you know, sometimes you're saying something and it comes out and you're like, wait, I didn't mean that. Right, right. <laughs> Brain and to it, mouth, like, did not work that well. <laughs> and it's, it's a bit sort of mean for someone then to take that onto a different show and they're like, aha, look what they it's said. They're such me. a dick. And you, you kind of expect it, to be honest, because that's why, you know, when you go on shows like this, you expect people of a different political persuasion to take the least charitable interpretation of something that you've said. But that isn't what's happened here. This is Lawrence Fox, who has gone live on air with Dan Wooten, another unsavoury character who's dealing with some sexual allegations uh, mm-hmm. at the moment that we don't yet know anything about. That's kind of ongoing. Um, but Lawrence Fox said on this show that no one would want to shag her, which is just like, it's just pathetic, it's not isn't actually it? engaging at all with what she said. Yeah. You know, if he wanted to say, I think actually all the words she used there, they were talking about male mental health. Yeah. If, if, if he wanted to, that would be absolutely fine. But he didn't really even comment on that. He was just like, tell you what, I wouldn't shag her. Like, it's relevant, pathetic, relevant what? Isn't it? It's just like, oh, grow up. It's the kind of thing that you would expect from like, literally, you know, a debate on the playground. Yeah. Like when you haven't got anything of any, like remotely intelligent to say, you're just like, oh, you look funny or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't want to get with you. You know, we talked about Dan Wooten there. He was seen laughing in, during the yeah. footage. Um, and it, it's caused a bit of a an, an outcry, as understandably it should. Uh, Ava herself uh, commented that she felt sickened by it, that there was a segment on television broadcast about mm. like how someone wouldn't want to shag her. Even Dan Wooten, he's, he's trying to, in the clip, if you see it, he tries to row back a little bit and say, oh, no, 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 but, but she is attractive. So that is a good thing to say. To it's so bizarre. It's like the two options way. are nobody would want to shag you or, oh, actually, she's fit. As though like a woman's worth and yeah. the right to an opinion should be like determined by either of those factors. It's utterly gross. <laughs> so it's 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 caused a, a, an outcry, understandably. Also GB News, I mean, it, it, it's amazing they can just 
get lower and lower and lower. <laughs> and I think this is, yeah, there's lots of people who also women have had similar misogynistic experiences, maybe not necessarily in that yeah. sexualized way, but certainly in other ways. So it's all sort of come to a head. There's been plenty of, uh, of, of uh, complaints that have gone to Ofcom and they have actually suspended him. You might think that's the end of the conversation, but actually, as we record this, it's still going on. And two bits of it that I found quite interesting was that Dan Wooten issues an apology. He says, oh, I was laughing out of shock and I was looking at my computer and I didn't really know. And of course, this is totally unacceptable and I should have called it out. Lawrence Fox was obviously furious about that, that he clearly felt that he'd been thrown under the bus. So he released some private messages between him and Dan where Dan is seen laughing about the comments after the fact. So this idea that like, oh, you know, I was all in shock. I was reacting quickly. We're not quite sure if it's there. He also released a follow-up post where he shows uh, the information that he'd sent to the producer before recording, telling the producer, I am going to say these lines. Mm. So there were numerous opportunities for this to be pulled and it's really reflective of the fact that GB News trades in this. They like it it works for them there's money for them in doing this um and i'm just really enjoying the snakes eating each other oh it's beautiful to watch i'm like the only problem is though of course is that every time this happens they get loads of traction yeah you know that is that is a part of the problem um so i don't really know what there is to do about that other than just i don't know mute out any mention of GB News on Twitter. Well, it's got it's got to be a job for for Ofcom. I mean, Shadow Attorney General Emily Thornbury, she had sort of tagged them uh, in a post asking them for their intervene. She she joins a number of politicians mm. who who are are raising the call. I mean, there's always been a concern with GB News and their relationships to government. I mean, there are MPs that appear regularly. You do wonder if if they will continue uh, to appear. Ofcom's statement was, we can confirm we've received a number of complaints about comments made by Lawrence Fox on GB News last night. We're assessing these complaints against our broadcast rules and we'll publish the outcome as quickly as possible. You don't do GB News though, do you, Grace? I, um, I I don't do GB News. I'm... You know, I'm not really that bothered about like the political persuasion of the outfit out like outlets that I do appear on. I go on like right wing news channels. I'll even yeah. you know debate Tories or debate whoever on on their podcasts and stuff. I'm kind of like that's what they want. They're like debate me. Well, exactly, debate and me. I'm very happy to debate them. Absolutely no question. Um, I just haven't done GB News. I don't think it's worth it. Um, the I think the editorial standards as we've seen are pretty low. There are certain people that I'm just like I wouldn't want to go on with because. I just think you're like gross or whatever. So, you know, the lines I think for me aren't really political. They're more like, you know, about what I'm comfortable with and and that sort of thing. And, but and but what's do you practical. think that like, if if imagining this was one of those outlets that you do work for and this happened, do you think you would withdraw your labour from appearing? Do you think that's something that we should sort of expect from other people that appear on this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, yeah, I can see that this would be if, you know, we had a, a, a we're able to have a conversation about this and Ava says, I think that people should now like start saying no categorically to going on this show because of what's happened to me. I would 100% support that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, same with any other any other show if this happened and, and that was like a kind of effective way of, um, of mobilizing a campaign. I kind of think uh, generally around these questions, you know, should we boycott X or Y or Z yeah, show? Yeah. I think that if it's part of a big campaign... So if people are saying, we are going to come together to boycott this specific show in order to achieve this goal, 
I'm all for it. If it's just a kind of blanket, we won't appear on anything that doesn't align with our politics. I don't think that's practical. So, you know, it's it's kind of a bit of a grey area, I think. If you have any comments on anything we've discussed today, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514644572 internationally. That's plus 447514644572. We'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed or just send us a question or if you've got any political dilemmas or, I don't know, just anything. We just like just we just we like being contacted, you know. We like to be loved. Uh, so that address again is psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. So what you're hearing now, that's the music. That's the end. It's time for the credits. Grace, you ready? You're picking I'm up ready. finish. Okay, here we go. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop with additional production support from Annie Keats-Thorpe and Dawn Emery. Video editing was by David Kaplowitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer, David Dagahi. The executive producers are Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're Pod Save the UK, all one word. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.